You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. As always, I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Program Manager for the Department of Philosophy. And today we continue our COVID-19 series, though changing up from the narrative form, we're going to do a full interview today with our guest, Dr. Faith Day. Dr. Faith Day is the Assistant Director of COVID Black and a clear postdoctoral fellow in data curation in the Libraries and School of Information Studies and the African American Studies and Research Center at Purdue University. Dr. Day works on developing curriculum, data collection, and curation projects in collaboration with other scholars to identify critical frameworks and best practices to ensure an ethical and justice-centered approach to data curation with a focus on Black and LGBTQIA community-based and data discourse. Dr. Faith Day, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Before we get into the interview, I also just wanted to let listeners know that we are also joined today by Caroline Cross. Uh, Caroline is the intern for the Grindstone podcast. She has been doing all the recording of our COVID-19 series interviews. And thanks to her for being here and for doing all the recording and sound editing and writing some of the narrative and recording that. Caroline, thanks. Thanks for being here and thanks for doing all this work for this series. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a joy so far. Faith, you are the Assistant Director of COVID Black, a task force on Black health and data. You recently published a piece in the blog of the American Studies Journal titled On Teaching in the Time of COVID-19, COVID Black, Organizing Information on Racial Health Disparities and Living Data. In the blog, you talk a little bit about COVID Black and how it was initiated. So I thought there would be maybe the best place to start. Would you mind sharing with us, please, what is COVID Black? What is the mission of COVID Black? And maybe talk a little bit about some of the people who have and continue to develop it. Yes. So COVID Black is a new organization, fairly new, since March, April is when we began and essentially COVID Black is a Black digital humanities collective, a group of scholars, medical professionals, um, librarians, community members who have kind of come together for the purpose of organizing resources and information specifically around data and health disparities that are both sort of within the Black community and then for Uh, different Black diasporic communities. And so COVID Black was actually initiated by Kim Gowan, uh, who is an associate professor uh, within the history department at Purdue University, as well as Nishani Frazier, who is now um, the associate professor of American studies and history at the University of Kansas. And so this was an idea that both of them had. They started it and sort of I I got a, a phone call one day out of the blue, uh, shortly after we were sort of released into quarantine with this sort of idea of, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, we created this organization that would sort of be able to do something, you know, as scholars, as researchers who are invested in Black communities to sort of respond to everything that is going on within COVID-19. 
And specifically sort of the first response, the first action that we were thinking of doing was, and not many people may remember that initially, you know, there was not race ethnicity data being collected uh, within all states about COVID-19. And so we sort of got together, um, myself, Kim Gallen, and Shawnee Frazier, and sort of drafted this call to action that people could send to their local health departments, that you could send to your departments um, within a university or institution to actually ask for this sort of call. And this was in response to sort of many calls um, at the larger sort of state and national level from different people to actually be able to collect that race and ethnicity data. And so through a couple of months forward, we're now seeing pretty much all of the states, there are a few who still do not collect that data, but you know, most of the states at this point are now collecting race ethnicity data. So that was kind of our initial beginning, but now we're thinking a lot more about, you know, how do you utilize sort of the frameworks of, of Black studies, of, of Black digital humanities that sort of informed by public health research to actively address the sort of role that intersectionality is sort of playing within uh, not only issues around information and science and technology, but medicine. And I think for us specifically, thinking about what are the roles of sort of the digital and everything that's going on right now? How can we use sort of digital tools and technologies to not only focus on a lot of this sort of statistical data about mortality rates, but how do we use digital tools and technology to collect actual narratives of Black lived experience during this time? And I think there has been this sort of, not to say over-focus, but an increased amount of focus on sort of the disproportionate effects that COVID-19 has had within Black communities that specifically brings awareness to kind of all of the the negative effects of COVID. And I think a big part of COVID Black is not just sort of focusing on this kind of data around mortality, data around disproportionate health effects, but also thinking about what is the actual lived experience? Where's the living data? How can we think about ways for communities to support each other? How can you create networks of care? How can you do this sort of more sort of outreach and organizing work to actually think about, you know, what Black communities are doing to survive COVID-19 and to potentially thrive after this situation and through this situation and not just sort of uh, the kind of racial health disparities that I think we're kind of constantly hearing about. That's great. I think one of the things that perhaps in my introduction I failed to highlight is the digital aspect of this. So I imagine that in one way, living in 2020, we have the tools to collect this data in a much different way and to disseminate this data in a much different way. Uh, but the narrative piece and the stories piece is particularly interesting about that to me. It's all interesting, but that um, was particularly interesting in terms of your description of it. Just as a follow-up question, well, I have two follow-up questions, but first, have you been able to collect and gather sort of a library of oral responses or oral histories? I mean, in a way, it's not even history, right? We're still going through it. But have you been able to collect just narratives that have been shared, uh, people recording their stories, and maybe, you know, bring those together? And if so, or is there any plan to maybe put those together or release them? So this has actually been one of, I guess, the big projects that we've been working on um, as COVID Black. So at this point, we're doing a lot of work about creating this sort of technology to be able to do that work. So we are currently working on our content management system to actually be able to kind of collect and have archives of Black lived experience during this time, also working on a website 
that will allow us to be able to actually have people sort of send information about their experiences. We actually do have though within our website currently a survey that does allow people to kind of respond um, to COVID-19 with this particular survey. You can also add like audio and visual clips or you know attachments uh, to the survey, which can give you a more diverse narrative and diverse collection of experience. So not just how are people sort of responding in this time, what are your survival strategies, but also thinking specifically about, you know, are there other things that you would want to share about how you're experiencing this time period, I think are all things that we're interested in and doing a variety of projects within the collective from different researchers who have, you know, various backgrounds with things like participatory design and community outreach. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. Real quick, I would like to offer our services if you need any recording done. And I mean this genuinely. If you need any recording done, just let us know. Second follow-up to what you were saying just generally about the COVID Black Project, you mentioned that not all states have data, particularly racial data. I have to ask, does Indiana have this data? Has, has Indiana started collecting? And if so, was it early in the game or is this a recent, <laughs> recently coming about? Yeah, so Indiana does collect uh, the race ethnicity data. Well, it's an interesting question with race ethnicity data because it's quite possible that certain states are collecting but are not sharing. There are a couple of, I guess, larger groups who are doing this sort of racial data collecting. Um, COVID Black in particular tends to follow like the APM Research Lab and the COVID Racial Data Tracker. And so both of them have a list of states who are, as they, I think, refer to it as like not releasing adequate data about particular things. And there's also a question um, within data collection specifically about how people are collecting their data. Of course, much of the data about COVID-19 is aggregated data. There's not just one data source. It's coming from all of these different kind of healthcare institutions. And so that also means that different institutions might have different data practices. And so there are a lot of questions about sort of the limitations even of, yes, we now have race ethnicity data, but what does it mean that we have this data? Which data is missing? What variables are we not getting at? So yes, Indiana has it. I don't know exactly when Indiana started, if they were always in it from the very beginning, or if it was something that they were doing later on. But I will say that the interesting thing that we have found is that for the most part, many places state are collecting it, but it's quite possible that they're not sharing it. Or there's been a lot of discussion, especially with COVID-19, about sort of the mortality. And that a lot of the data that we sort of get about people when it comes to COVID-19 mortality is posthumous data. So not even necessarily the data was collected when that person kind of went into the hospital, but that is data that we now have because the person died. And so that also changes sort of how I'm thinking about the collection process and potentially this idea that we don't always know what we're getting with the data collection. I think that that is something that I've been thinking a lot about, like what does it mean to sort of push particular standards and what types of standards do we need to have as sort of across the board national understanding of how data should be collected, what data should be collected, and how it should be aggregated is, I think, a big question for many people right now. Yeah, I have to say, I think I mentioned to you on the phone that I used to work in the research data libraries. Um, 
as a graduate student for years and then as a postdoctoral research associate, I split time between the, the Department of Philosophy and the research data libraries. And I have to say our research data libraries at Purdue, they do great work over there. But speaking generally about data, yeah, just some of the things you mentioned just now with, you know, yeah, the trials and tribulations of raw data, data aggregation, metadata, refining the question, figuring out what data you actually have, what you need. That is a podcast series unto itself. So I won't ask any follow-ups, but this is just to say to you and your colleagues, I can only imagine those conversations. I've been in those conversations before in my experience in the research data libraries. And as amazing and beautiful and informative as data can be, it can also be incredibly frustrating. So best of luck working with the data. Real quick, I did just want to say that I think the best way for people to find COVID Black online is to search for COVID Black Purdue. But I will say that we will include the full URL in our show notes, but I'm also going to give it now in case listeners want to jot this down. It is, I will say up front, very long, and that is not a slight against COVID Black. That is, and I hope this remains in the final take, a slight against Purdue and our need to have ridiculously long URLs. But the URL for COVID Black is cla.purdue.edu forward slash academic forward slash SIS forward slash P, just the letter P, forward slash African hyphen American forward slash COVID hyphen Black. But again, it'll be in the show notes and COVID Black Purdue uh, in a search should yield it for you. So moving on, Faith, I was hoping to dive into some aspects of this public health crisis a little further here. Generally speaking, COVID-19 is affecting Black communities in the U.S. more adversely than it is affecting white communities. But I wanted to ask you about um, a certain socioeconomic reality that has been exacerbated by COVID-19, and that is the number of Black essential workers that have been affected in this crisis. People of color in the U.S. make up a large portion of what are considered essential labor positions, especially during the economic shutdowns of March, April, and May. And these shutdowns may be, again, on the horizon in certain areas, unfortunately, with the numbers rising. I don't know. This is just, you know, speculation. Maybe we experience these shutdowns again. But this creates really awful situations for all essential workers, but in particular, the dilemma which affects many black essential workers is this, the choice between going to work, assuming they are able to continue working, and risk exposure for themselves and their families to the virus, or to stay at home to minimize exposure, but then risking financial losses. Uh, So I was wondering if you and the COVID Black Project Uh, have any data on this? And also, how does the potential financial ruin affect not only Black workers, families, and communities, but also the larger sustainability of the economy as a whole? So yes, this is a really interesting question, and it makes me think um, back. So in its inception, COVID Black was a part of a series of uh, Twitter conversations put on by the African American Intellectual History Society. And our director of community outreach, um, Shani Frazier, did the first one. But the series, if anybody's interested, is called uh, Black Life in the Age of COVID-19. And actually, last week, I was in attendance in one of them. And um, Dr. Kay Whitehood, uh, who's a professor at Loyola, discussed the way that COVID-19 is affecting Black communities. And she specifically described it as a syndemic. 
And syndemic was a term I had not heard of before, but then of course I had to look it up. And you know, syndemic as a term uh, created by Meryl Singer, who's actually a medical anthropologist. Um, this concept even too of a medical anthropology and medical humanities as well is something that COVID Black has been very interested in and thinking about the important role of doing interdisciplinary work uh, in this time period, especially as you speak to this fact that yes, we are talking about COVID-19, but there are all these other kind of issues that exist outside of the world of public health, outside of the world of healthcare and medicine. And especially even thinking about the terminology of a syndemic, it's thinking about how while you might have individuals who are dealing with a set of linked health problems, multiple intersecting health issues, they're also dealing with multiple intersecting social, cultural, and environmental issues that only kind of exacerbate whatever those health issues are. And so like you said, it's like within Black communities right now, it's like you're dealing with COVID-19, but many people are also dealing with pre-existing conditions kind of on top of COVID-19 that already negatively impact Black communities on top of the kind of social and environmental factors of systemic racism, which has its own health effects around stress, dealing with state-sanctioned violence, dealing with gentrification, discrimination in healthcare, less access to different types of resources, all of these things um, that sort of compound these effects of COVID-19. And I think for many of us, there has been this discussion of, oh, you know, you'll be fine and protected from COVID, you know, if you just stay at home. You just stay at home and wash your hands. You won't have to deal with it <laughs> and wear your mask. That doesn't take into account, you know, within Black communities, many people, like you say, cannot stay at home. Uh, they have to sort of go out and work. And I'm in particular always reminded of the role that so many Black women play within the healthcare industry. And so, you know, working in industries like being um, home health aides, being nurses assistants, working in nursing homes, which has been a big place of COVID-19 spread, even to living in multi-generational households where you potentially have to take care of the elders in your family as being more normative within black and brown communities. And so I think even uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I pulled this the other day, said black people make up about 25% of these sort of workers in these areas. And so it's like, not only are black people then essential workers in the grocery store or in the food service industries, there are things that did not close during COVID in places of employment where you could not stay at home, specifically at this time. But you also, I feel like have all of these black workers kind of at the front lines of COVID-19 as they are working to literally take care of others at the expense of themselves and their own families. And then there of course is, you know, a long history of how that burden is placed on Black community members, especially Black women, to perform care work um, that also doesn't even pay a livable wage, and also on top of that, doesn't offer adequate health care. So if you do sort of get COVID-19, that you're not going to get that sick leave or those benefits that many other people are getting when they contract COVID. And so there are, yeah, all of these different concerns, and I do think a lot about you know, what are the economics of this. People have been discussing the fact that I think within the United States at large, you know, an impending recession that comes from COVID. And there's like a, a phrase that people love to say, like a little colloquialism of, you know, when white America gets the cold, black America catches the flu. And so there's this sense of, yes, there's going to be a recession, but it's like, there's going to be a really, really serious kind of economic fallout within Black communities who are also now already experiencing this sort of 
uh, healthcare related fallout. And so on top of, of course, the increased policing that's being experienced, which reminds me uh, as well about the fact that, you know, the, the safety that we're expected to have around taking precautions during COVID-19. So I think about wearing masks as one safety precaution that we're all expected to take that doesn't take into account the policing that Black people experience and the stereotype threat for Black people of appearing intimidating. And the fears even that Black people have and the stress <laughs> that also creates another healthcare effect of even wearing masks in public and wanting to wear masks and wanting to keep other people safe, but also wondering, you know, is that going to now make me a target for some type of policing? Is that going to make me, you know, a target from other people sort of in the world? It's like all of these compounding issues sort of add to this concept of COVID-19 as the kind of catalyst for this new sort of syndemic that we're not only going to see kind of this year and next year, but probably for years to come. This idea of syndemic, this is really interesting to me. So I just wanted to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Is it S-Y-N-D-E-M-E-C, the prefix S-Y-N? So yeah, like even thinking about the etymology, like the sin, it's like multiple epidemics that exist together, or even to some extent, you know, thinking pandemics that exist together. Awesome. Okay, so the way I understand it, it's a synthesis of multiple pandemics. So it takes into account... Um, intersectionality, and also then not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but other pandemics of racial inequity and socioeconomic inequity is, is, is how I understand it. And that's fascinating. Thanks for that. The other thing is uh, you had mentioned policing, and we will we'll return to that shortly. But just as a quick follow-up to the broader uh, socioeconomic disparities and inequities that certainly existed before COVID-19, but have been exacerbated by COVID-19. If we consider the public health crisis from another angle, uh, not specifically socioeconomic, but one that certainly, in my opinion anyway, intersects with it, there is data that shows us that Black Americans are statistically likely to live closer to polluted industrial sites, particularly where air quality standards are concerned. I was just wondering if COVID Black has done any research into how this might affect Black Americans and their physiological vulnerability to COVID-19. Well, I will say that COVID Black specifically has not started to do research about how air pollution is affecting Black communities. I know I personally have been thinking a lot about not only air pollution, but clean water and other sorts of environmental crises at this time. For me, like I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan at the same time that you know the Flint water crisis becomes this highly publicized event. And so when the rules around social distancing and hand washing came out, I was sort of struck by the kind of irony of hand washing being presented as this way to protect yourself from COVID-19 when you have millions of people in America who do not have access to clean water at all. And not only the amount of communities that were kind of on the upswing in terms of uh, having those issues addressed. And then because COVID-19 happened, there was like a halt to those issues being addressed. And so that was, I think, one big thing that I thought a lot about at this time period. Another big thing that I thought about, especially as it relates to the fact that many 
sort of of black communities, you know, live near polluted water, live uh, in spaces where there is high level of air pollution is the fact that, of course, COVID-19, you know, is an illness that affects the respiratory system and that black people in particular have, you know, the highest rates of kind of death and hospitalization, as well as, you know, respiratory conditions like asthma, like asthma is rampant in the black community, um, especially for children. And there's actually a really interesting study from Princeton University that talks about like black children are twice as likely to have asthma as other children are. And it's connected to the fact that there is this sort of pollution within black neighborhoods. And that connection as well goes back to the specific industries that are near different black neighborhoods. And so it's fascinating for me thinking about the environmental concerns that need to be addressed within this country that you know all of this money is being spent on economic bailouts of corporations and industries and we're not seeing that same push to address like clean water to address pollution to address these issues that are not only affecting black communities especially with covid-19 there's a sense that you know what is an issue in one community is going to affect all of us if certain people don't have access to clean water how is it helpful for us all to be, oh, we're all supposed to wash our hands. Well, if some people can't wash their hands, then that means that the virus will continue to spread. And it's only going to spread because not everybody has access to the same things. Not everybody can stay at home. Not everybody can wash their hands. Not everybody has clean air that they can breathe. Not everybody is going to then even recover from COVID-19 in the same way because we're living in Instead of people say different Americas. We live in different Americas. We're living in different places, literally. And that we know that African-Americans are more likely to live near landfills and plants. And, you know, to have all of these things that really uh, affect your quality of life, but exacerbate these different healthcare conditions. And I'm definitely really concerned about that. And I think on the other end of it, too, I think a lot of the times we think about these things socioeconomically. And I think another big issue that we are seeing with COVID-19 is that there is sometimes a really big concern about the socioeconomics of Black communities as the kind of underlying reason why all of these problems happen. So it becomes because Black people are poor or they live in um, underfunded neighborhoods, that's why they're having these disproportionate effects that doesn't always address the kind of systemic racism that underlies all of these things, and that that is really what has to be addressed in order to have any real change. That's a big part of the narrative of syndemics, as well as talking about you can't just address one thing. You know, we can't just get clean water and then everything is solved. That all of these issues have to be addressed in order to have any movement forward and to also ensure that everybody has at least a similar quality of life within this country. Yeah, the, the environmental piece, I'm not an expert. Some people know that in my dream life, I am an environmental lawyer that represents the people in front of the Supreme Court. I think about this a lot just from a standpoint of ethics and not even just environmental ethics, but you know, human ethics, <laughs> being more humane. The racist policies that drive how residential areas are set up and what is affordable to which populations and where the not only those residential locations are 
in terms of the larger map of the U.S. or the world, but also specifically where they're located in relation to polluted sites, industrial sites. And you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there's many larger issues, including water quality, but the air quality thing is the piece that really strikes a chord with me because that's going to affect your lungs and make you more vulnerable to pre-existent conditions that we know then act as comorbidities with something like COVID-19 because your lungs are already vulnerable and perhaps not able to you know, deal with the physiological challenge uh, that your body needs to respond to when it contracts the virus. So Faith, we know, or some of us know, or hopefully we all should know, that these racial inequities have existed in the U.S. for centuries and around the world. The COVID-19 pandemic has, as we mentioned earlier, exacerbated them, these racial inequities. And frankly, for some people, the pandemic may just be bringing these racial inequities to light, but the exposure and exacerbating of these racial inequities uh, have been then brought further to the forefront of, let's say, a larger public conversation, specifically on the 25th of May, 2020, by the tragic and brutal and, and frankly, inhumanly public murder of George Floyd. How has COVID Black responded to this uh, maybe additional aspect of the, a national conversation around police brutality of communities of color and racial inequity? I'm just wondering here, has this shifted the focus of COVID Black, uh, the focus of your research at all? Or is the intersectionality at the core of your project already working to expose precisely this kind of racial inequity and racist policy? Yes, I think that COVID Black is constantly sort of very, very aware, especially because so many of us uh, sort of have so many different research interests and so are kind of constantly aware of the way that sort of all of these things sort of work together and you know coalesce in so many different ways um specifically even thinking about george floyd it's like as information comes out about george floyd you know we find out that george floyd um, is tested positive for covid19 or even too on the other end of it uh, a big uh story that I was really concerned about and followed um, was the story of Breonna Taylor, who was an essential worker, an EMT, you know, aspired to be a nurse. And I guess for those who don't know, Breonna Taylor was a young black woman, and of course, another one of the many people who died from state-sanctioned police violence during this pandemic. And I think going back to the question that we discussed about, you know, who's allowed to stay at home and who's not allowed to stay at home. Um, in interviews, Breonna Taylor's mother actually talks a lot about being afraid for her daughter's life um, because she was an essential worker, not, you know, thinking <laughs> that, you know, she's going to have to deal with police violence. And I think that's something, you know, to also think about a lot of the times within our understandings of Black Lives Matter, we, we forget about the intersections and there's this idea of we have to only be concerned about Black men. But it's like, no, it's like Black women, Black trans women have had also many deaths, you know, during this time period. So there's an intersection here, not only between identities, but between this concept of the pandemic and policing as so many of people who are essential workers within Black communities 
are not only on the front lines of the pandemic, but they're actually having to put themselves at greater risk for policing by nature of having to be outside of the house in public space. Um, and I think, you know, those of us who are more privileged and who can be at home are kind of not necessarily experiencing that in the same way. However, with Breonna Taylor's case, it's even more complicated because her case also shows that, you know, Black people aren't even safe in their homes because she was killed in her home. <laughs> and so there's a sense of even that privilege of being safe from COVID-19, being safe from the police um, in your house is also denied uh, to Black people who are really just trying to live to see another day. And a big uh, conversation uh, that we had within COVID-19 was about, you know, there were so many webinars and so many talks that have been happening at this time period geared towards, you know, adults, geared towards people who I think know this history. They know these news stories. You know, they've seen the videos. Um, but, you know, for, for me personally, you know, I have two teenage brothers. Um, and other people in COVID Black also have young people in their lives. And so we were thinking, it's like, well, how do we talk to sort of Black youth, Black teens about this relationship between pandemics and policing? Because they're dealing with so much too. They can't go to school. They can't see their friends. They have to be in the house. And then all you're getting in the house is just news. And it's not good news <laughs> that you're seeing about Black community members. And for me, um, you know, my background is, you know, being a communication scholar media effects are very real. Um, meme world syndrome is very real, that you will have a really negative outlook of the world if you're only seeing these types of stories and you have no way of understanding what's going on at this time period. And so COVID Black just had um, last week on Friday, our first pandemics and policing events where we got to talk to a group of teens um, with two psychologists actually from Michigan and have a really interesting conversation. And it was, it was fascinating to me to see their responses to this time period. And the questions they had were just, were so beyond what I would have expected from people between like ages 12 to 15. One of their biggest concerns was thinking about the, the role of performativity in responses to Black Lives Matter. Why are these corporations sort of just saying that they care about Black lives now? Why are people on social media who I know don't care you know, about Black lives saying that they care now? How do we hold people accountable to these things? You know, why is it that we're experiencing this? What is the history of what's going on right now? And so it definitely made me think a lot about, you know, who are we reaching out to? How are we doing outreach work? Who are we thinking about when we're having these conversations? I think a lot of the times, especially with COVID-19 and state-sanctioned violence, like these are conversations that I think end up in the space of we have to create policy, we have to create legislature, we have to have protests, and like that is the way that we deal with it. But it's also like thinking about like the education aspect. How do we educate people? about what's going on right now, that there are young people who are confused. And so I think that that is something that I really enjoyed about COVID Black, being with so many people who you know, exist within Black studies, who exist within an understanding of Black history, who can actually do that work of creating resources, creating materials, and helping to sort of educate uh, not only people you know, who are adults, but these sort of future generation, these students, these young people who really need to understand what's going on right now. Yeah, that age group that you mentioned is, at least you know when I was in school, it would have been like middle school, early high school. 
sort of age. And that seems like an incredibly important age group to be reaching through this. But also, I just want to say it is amazing that youth, broadly speaking, say, you know, 18 and under, or, you know, up to high school age, the questions they can ask. Uh, it's always, I don't have kids, but um, I have a niece and nephew that are, you know, four and two respectively. And even at that age, the questions that they ask is is amazing. So that sounds like it was a great webinar um, and, and very informative and obviously impactful and helpful. One thing I wanted to come back to, what was the media syndrome? I'm sorry, could you, could you repeat that? Yes. So mean world syndrome is actually a um, smaller part of the, the general idea of cultivation theory within communication. And so this idea that a lot of mean world syndrome talks about the effects of many times watching a lot of news specifically. And the idea that if you're watching, for example, a lot of news that says that Black people are committing crimes, that you'll tend to believe that Black people are criminals and that there's all this violence and terrible things that happen in the world. And I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about cultivation theory and mean world syndrome as we're all in the house and everybody is watching television and you're watching this kind of constant news about COVID-19, news about policing, news even about protests, and the way that the news is presenting those things, how does it influence your understanding of what's actually happening in the world? And I think we, we've talked about this uh, within communication and political studies where you know, many of us don't have access to Congress. We're not politicians. Everything we know about what happens in the White House is something that the news told us happened. And it's the same thing now as we're not allowed to be outside. Everything that we're getting about what's going on in the world right now is now being mediated through the news. And we do really have to be critical about what it is we're being told and the, the ways that the news itself is also a corporation, is also a business, has to make profit, has to get ratings. And so all of those things are kind of constantly in the back of my mind and a big part of COVID Black is thinking a lot about the role of the media and journalism in this time period. In terms of the mean world syndrome, so there's a confirmation bias, I think, is part of that, that people see in the information they're getting things that they already believe to be true. So I was thinking about the difference of experience between, say, a Black American and a white American and something like this. So if you're Black, the media is reinforcing stereotypes about you, images that the media and white people may have about you. Thank you for sharing that with me because I, I had actually never heard of that communication studies is in my background, but that was one of the things I thought is, and, and not to dismiss the importance of the black experience with this syndrome or what they see through the media, but I thought, oh, that only means that racist white people that see this are going to have a confirmation bias. With the education piece, are these things going to be disseminated or made available asynchronously? I know we're in the process of creating resources around it. And so that might be something that is actually shared, the resources that were created to help teens during this time. So I will definitely follow up um, with you to see if that's something that we actually end up putting on the website. Picking up from the previous question, if I, if I can just be completely honest for a moment, one intuitive response I had to watching videos of the protests in Minneapolis was, for better or for worse, oh, 
bleep, the protesters are going to transmit and contract the virus. That was something that occurred to me when I, when I, when I, when I saw those videos and not that I didn't have other emotional reactions that were supportive of the protest, but given the time that this was happening late May, early June, I would be lying if I didn't say that that occurred to me that this might create a spreading event for the virus itself. How have COVID black and more broadly speaking, black lives matter and other organizing bodies of peaceful protests and social activism been able to balance the need for these protests and this activism with the need to remain diligent with wearing facial coverings and remaining physically distanced as the virus continues to spread. Uh, and particularly to call back to something you mentioned earlier, the real effect on the superficial appearance of black Americans when wearing facial coverings in the sense that that may exacerbate a stereotype of their being dangerous or, or a threat? Yes, I feel like this has been a, a big question um, for many people and even thinking about like the media's role in, in constructing a certain portrayal of protests. Um, another big question I've been thinking a lot about is even algorithmic bias. So even when I type in, in Google, protests in COVID-19, it completes to protest in COVID-19 increases <laughs> spread of virus. That's what it immediately goes to. And so there's this idea that yes, we've kind of been programmed to make these associations because a lot of that is the way that protests have been discussed um, within media and journalism. And something that I've really loved um, is how many public health organizations have come out releasing statements sort of against police violence and kind of for protests, even kind of in the state of the pandemic. And so something that we actually shared, and I would, I would definitely suggest people to follow uh, COVID Black on Twitter because we share a ton of uh, information from like different public health organizations, from different medical professionals, from people who are actually creating resources around these things. But the American Public Health Association, one of my favorites is that they literally describe kind of law enforcement violence as a pressing public health issue. They're like, this is the public health issue that we need to be fighting for. And so I feel like from that perspective, you know, if you want to protest, you know, the medical and healthcare community <laughs> is on your side uh, in, many, in many ways and people are actually creating those resources. And so some examples of that are definitely on the COVID Black Twitter. And so it's at COVID, C-O-V-I-D-B-L-K, COVID Black. A lot of it has been advice around, you know, making sure maybe that you bring more than one mask uh, when you go to protest in case, you know, one gets hot and sweaty, having hand sanitizer on you in case you can't get to a bathroom. Some people have also discussed, you know, the potential of getting tested uh, for COVID afterwards, uh, just to be safe, I sort of a few sort of suggestions from these resources that I've sort of been seeing around. There are a lot of kind of guidelines for safe protesting that you can look up. Uh, one for me personally, I do a lot of online communication organizing, watching the social media um, of different departments. I won't say who, <laughs> but I, I do do that. And so with that being said, I've been thinking a lot and been very conscious of a facial recognition software 
and other such technologies of surveillance and policing. So, you know, wearing a face shielding visor, you all can't see this who are listening, but I wear this thing. <laughs> when I am outside, which is essentially a, a visor in addition to a mask, um, so that might not only help in terms of protecting yourself in different ways, you know, making sure that you're following the social distancing rules, um, but protecting yourself from being seen and photographed without your consent at protests. Because I have personally noticed that the police, you know, do take pictures, news journalists do take pictures of protesters and then post it on social media. And that can eventually lead to identifying people protesting. And so that's something that I've been very conscious of in this current time period, how technologies of surveillance and policing are moving from the offline world into the online world. Um, and, and as well, a lot of my research is about, of course, the media and social media. And I think we should really highlight that there have been so many organizers who have been doing sort of safe social distancing protests. And so, for example, I've seen so many organizers who are actually using tape and chalk to like chalk out where you stand um, to mark space on the ground for people to actually stand and protest and do safe social distancing. You have people like Angela Davis, who does all this kind of prison abolition work, who has been sharing and highlighting protests where people have actually organized in cars and done caravans of protests. Um, and so in Chicago, I think very recently, like maybe in the last two weeks, that they had a, like a car caravan of protests in solidarity with the pedestrians who were kind of on the sidewalks. Another one I've seen as well have been park protests as becoming very popular. Another way for you to very easily, safely, socially distance from other people, you get your space and you create your space, and then other people are also in their own spaces. And I think those protests in particular, both car protests and park protests, are also speaking to the fact that people of, are of differing ages and differing abilities. And so making protests themselves also more accessible not only from the healthcare perspective, but you know, more accessible in terms of people who maybe cannot walk for long distances, who maybe it's not safe for them to be around other people. And so finally that controlled space, I think it's very interesting that you know, kind of the mainstream news media does not always speak to the ways that people are doing those things and that work as much as they talk about, oh, well, what's going to happen now that people have protested, is this going to make COVID-19 spread? That being a more sensational news story, then look at all of the strategies that organizers are using for safe social distancing. I've been um, very cognizant of and looking at the way that certain kind of narratives about protests are spreading, especially at this time. Yeah, I appreciate your, your mentioning those peaceful protests and the fact that for, you know, algorithm heads out there, you know... <laughs> That if you do these searches, the images that come back certainly would, would tell you a particular story or portray it in a particular light if you weren't also looking for a better representation of the peaceful protests, uh, protests generally, and social activism. I love the park idea because it's a public space that we're all supposed to be sharing. Back to the environmental piece, though where black Americans may be statistically more likely to live near industrial sites of high pollution, often public parks are not as available in those areas or are policed in very different ways. And just hanging out in public in these parks in black neighborhoods or neighborhoods of color, predominantly speaking, they have such a different relationship to the public and law enforcement. 
No, and I love this, this discussion of, of public space and policing because, of course, I feel like, you know, there's been a lot of eyes on Minneapolis. And I was very excited to see that uh, the Parks and Rec in Minneapolis divested from the police. And they said, you know, we don't want police to be in the park. And I, you know, I thought about things like the Central Park Five, and I thought about these histories of policing that happened where, and you, even the past couple of weeks, we've had Black Birders Week. Um, in part because of the policing of <laughs> a bird watcher <laughs> in the park. We've had like Hikers Week, these different online social media initiatives that have spoken to the, the lack of safety that many Black community members feel in public space, space where you should be able to enjoy the environment, breathe the air, you know, have those kind of moments of peace and calm and serenity that being taken away from people, not only because of state-sanctioned policing, the actual police, but the policing of other people in the park, you know, who may call the police on you for, you know, for any, you know, social infraction, uh, you might say. And so I, I've been really hopeful that more places think about that, more kind of parks and rec spaces are, are thinking, you know, what, what is the role of policing in a park? Is that something that's a way that you can actually make an action and make a statement to say that you're kind of in support of the, you know, mental health and well-being of Black community members to actually make those spaces, those public spaces, actually safe places to go, and also to making them then safe places for people to gather maybe for protests or just to actually be able to feel like they're a part of their communities as well and not kind of feeling like there are certain spaces that they can't sort of live and breathe and enjoy in the same way that other members of the community can. The public policing, the, for lack of a better word coming to my mind, peer-to-peer policing, you know, just human-to-human policing, it's probably... 15 years ago, but some of us were back in my hometown of South Bend, Indiana during a summer or something like that. And we went to hang out in this little park in the neighborhood I grew up in. And we were just hanging out on like a park bench or whatever. The group for context was all white and a police officer came up and shined his light on us and asked us some questions, but um, was not lost on me that if the group had been of a different racial demographic or ethnic demographic, that would have probably been a very different conversation. But the need for certain white people to police the world and public spaces, particularly when where black youth is concerned, and to call police for a situation that if the same people doing the same thing were white just wouldn't occur to them to call is worthy of its own podcast series. But thank you for, for bringing that up. As we get towards the end of the interview here, just a couple questions left. This is, maybe this is a poorly formulated question, or at least a vague question, I apologize. But in your opinion, why has the public response to the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and the aforementioned Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks, only to name a few, recent murders that can be added to a nightmarish and frankly unconscionable historical list of Black Americans killed by police or white vigilantes, and people won't see them using air quotes, because I think the term vigilante almost excuses it somehow in a way that, I don't know if that's the right term, but you know why these recent murders have or seem to have inspired a different level 
of public protest and engagement. Now, granted, maybe that's from my perspective, and if, if that's unfair, then please feel free to tell me that that's a naive perspective. But it does seem that uh, there's a different level of public protest and engagement recently. So I just wondered uh, what your personal thoughts were on that. And, and additionally, do you think that our being in a broader public health crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, and our governmental response or lack thereof to it has been a factor in this? I would absolutely um, agree with that sentiment. Because honestly, I think that communities of color, for the most part, kind of have always been aware of these sort of various issues within America, you know, for a long time. Like, you know, we didn't need race ethnicity data on COVID-19 to know that black and brown communities were going to be disproportionately affected because that's just the reality of all, you know, healthcare and the things that kind of happen in this country. That's the, the history. Um, but I think that COVID-19 is just such a unique experience because it has really exposed, you know, the inadequacy and the failures of the U.S. government to protect its citizens you know, not only in particular communities, but kind of across the board. And so now this pandemic has sort of exposed how that lack of, of protection in many ways affects everybody. And I think a lot of more people are really angry about that. So there is this sense that there's a greater sense of solidarity and people now knowing that these systems are broken, that it's not people telling you, it's not just data and information that's giving you this, like you now experienced it, like you lost your job now. <laughs> and so now you're having to really think about, okay, like there are a lot of things that don't make sense here. And there are a lot of issues here and that those things actually aren't going to change unless people themselves actually do something about it um, and that they band together and actually think kind of cross coalitionally thinking about, okay, I have my own struggles and you have your own struggles. How can we do work that actually makes the world a better place for all of us and not just for one of us. And so, yeah, I think that definitely COVID and a lot of people have talked about, you know, COVID-19 as creating a portal. The pandemic has created a portal and that language of the portal, I think is very, very interesting at this time period because it, it's almost, it has created a kind of alternate reality an alternate space and place and time where our understanding of the United States has been dramatically shifted. You know, what does it mean to believe that this is, you know, the wealthiest nation in the world that doesn't have clean water for everybody, that doesn't have universal health care, that doesn't have any way, supposedly, you know, to actually help its citizens in the way that, you know, many other countries have shown up. And so it definitely has changed our perception. I think many people's perceptions of the realities of what this is and where we live and what that means actually for us as individuals and not being able to actually just rely on the government to make things happen, knowing that they're not, they're not showing up. They're not the savior you know, in this story. And so you know, what, what is the collective going to do about it? And I think that has been a real push. Uh, for a lot of people. This, this idea of portal is super interesting to me because if you think of it in the digital context, the digital humanities context, 
there's portals out there. Um, you know, certain websites, academic or research websites are referred to as portals and their databases, but also community spaces for people that are interested in certain projects or certain eras of history, or certain aspects of, you know, academia, whatever different fields, different subjects, broadly speaking, just to recall the digital humanities aspect of COVID black. So there's portals in that sense, the digital sense where they're, collecting spaces online for information and research and data, but then also obviously etymologically the idea of a door, a portal, something that, you know, um, some kind of threshold from one space to another. And there definitely seems to be an aspect of the world we're in now where it feels like we're transitioning. We're going through a doorway, not only to, the post-pandemic, the post-COVID-19 world, and I'm not naive enough to use the word post, but hopefully a world where racial inequity and racist policy is at the forefront of our social and cultural conversations and certainly political conversations. So I love that idea of, of, of portal. Thank you for that. I'm sad and I'm embarrassed about all the just systemic racism and inequality that has been a part of this country's history since before the founding. We're talking about like, this country has been racist since before it was even this country. That's almost 244 years since like we became independent from Great Britain. That's at least 244 years of just systemic racism. And we're still trying to fix that and do something about it. And it makes me sad. And it makes me sad that, you know, that it got to the point where people were still denying it until they saw a video of it. What can we be doing to, to stop these issues of systemic racism and injustice, you know, 244 years earlier? What can we be doing to get more informed to stop these problems sooner rather than later? Because 244 years of racism is not okay. One year of racism is not okay. What can we be doing every day just as citizens of this country and citizens of the world to fight injustice from the moment that it appears? Can I add to that? Thank you, Caroline, for asking. That's a great question. So thinking specifically about the recent peaceful protests and social activism, one of the media narratives around the protests has been about the numbers of white people participating. I've heard through a couple media outlets, oh, there's so many white people there. I myself have not participated in any protests. Uh, people who've listened to the show know I suffer from social anxiety. I get really nervous around crowds and maybe this is a bad time to say that or to use that as an excuse. I don't mean that, but people that know me know if I leave my house to go to the grocery store, like my heart rate goes up. But for those of us who are maybe not uh, able to be active in that way and protest, uh, or for health-related reasons, physiological or mental health, people that are differently abled, people who are of pre-existing conditions and maybe more vulnerable to contracting COVID-19, uh, people with anxieties. So for those of us who cannot participate in these protests, and I think this speaks to, to what Caroline was asking, what can we especially white people do to support not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but the general push for racial equity and against racist policy, and also to support our black friends, our black colleagues, and black family. 
Yeah, this is a great question. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially in conversation with this idea around data and evidence. And specifically, you know, I think about this with George Floyd, for example, you know, so many people talk about the video, but, you know, for me as somebody, you know, who's, I feel like been a student for forever, so been on college campuses forever, where you're having constant protests <laughs> about various things, I was just like, this is not the video that <laughs> we've seen like we've seen a lot of videos you know Rodney King happened like there have been so many moments over time where we've seen the this evidence this data this information and there has been a question to me about yeah what what will be the turning point um, that will actually cause people to understand what's going on and I've been recently reading a book by Russell Jacoby called Social Amnesia. And it is a book about psychology. It's an older book from like the 1970s, but it's very relevant to this time period and talks a lot about kind of liberal ideology and uh, the contemporary psychological movement. But a big part of that book and this concept of social amnesia, which I think is the issue that many times we face in this country. And I loved the way that kind of Caroline sets up this question through history, through the fact that this is not a new thing. This is something that is connected to all of these other things. And that many times the social amnesia that we have within our society is that every time something happens, it becomes an isolated incident. It's this thing that just occurred. We don't understand why it happened. We're very upset about it. This is unfortunate. And then we move on because that's also a new cycle, new, new cycle. We're moving on to whatever the next thing is and not actually spending the time to sit, to contextualize, to think back. What is the relevance of this moment? Why is this happening now? How is this connected to other things that have happened? And what can we do moving forward? And thinking about this concept of the portal, I'm teaching Black Digital Studies next semester, and the final week for that class is all about Black speculative futures and imagining the possibilities of what the world really could be. And so I think in thinking about what people really should be doing, um, it's one, actually not only speaking out in this moment, but speaking to the fact that this, these are not new things, understanding and educating yourself on these histories, on these legacies, on all of the things that have happened before this time and not only looking at that but knowing this past knowing this history understanding the different experiences of people who exist within intersexually marginalized communities what is the future that you want to imagine and what is the role that you think that you can play in imagining that new future and I feel like a lot of the times, and I think about this for myself, you know, you know, as somebody who is who is known to faint in a crowd, <laughs> I cannot always be in certain types of spaces um, with many types of people, different types of people. So it's like there are so many different things that you can do to get involved. Like I said for myself, I love online calm. I love doing the work of uh, uh, internet cop watch, watching the social media of different uh, police departments and, and noting, okay, this person is doing this. Oh, they're doing this now. Let me inform people about the strategies 
that are being used in the 21st century within police departments. There's your you know, regular cop watch. What are the police doing in your neighborhood? You know, we have Nextdoor app. Everyone wants to spy on their neighbors. Why don't you worry about what the police are doing? <laughs> that as something, as a possible thing that you can be doing to make, you know, the world a better place in the future. Um, there's also a lot of discussion about, we talked about policing. Um, and I, there's a lot of discussion within activist circles about, you know, the, the work that you need to do is always work within yourself. How do you silence your inner police? the inner uh, feeling within you that you need to be worried about what other people are doing. That that is something to work on as imagining a better future, imagining a world in which black people don't have to worry about somebody calling the police on them, who don't have to worry about how wearing a mask is going to be perceived. I feel like there are so many ways um, that people can really involve, but it's really kind of meeting yourself, you know, where you are, doing what you can do, um, in our Pandemics and Portals event, one of the psychologists who hosted the event talked about, you know, there are levels and lanes. We all have our own individual skills, talents, and abilities, and we all have our own capacity to do whatever it is that we are capable of doing. And so whether that means you're an educator, whether that means you're a parent, whether that means, you know, you work in a particular, maybe a, a toxic workplace, there are different ways in which you can bring your particular skills and your particular abilities to those spaces where you can actually make change in the world that maybe, you know, potentially goes beyond, you know, just going to a protest, but that there are so many different ways for you to do protests and to do that work. But I think it does really begin with understanding that there is a history, there is a path that you have to learn about, that you have to educate yourself on to be able to understand what's happening in this moment to know that none of these things are isolated incidents, none of them are new, but also now taking that information, what are you going to do about it? What's the imagined possible future that we can actually move towards? And how can you work with other people within your life to actually make that a present day reality? Thank you. That that's very helpful. And I think so many people are kind of asking like the same sort of question, like, what more can I do? You know? And so I'm really glad that you gave me those options and stuff because now I know like how I can also direct other people to those specific things. So thank you. That was a very informative answer. The Social Amnesia book, I'm going to check that out. Scholarship from the 70s is amazing. But I appreciate this idea on working on your inner social policing, if I can add the word social, working on your inner policing. I am terrible at that and I don't mean in the way of racist ideas but just in general I often particularly when driving I am policing the world and making moral judgments usually about everybody based on their driving but it's something that um that I've been processing and been working on but I realize that there's another level to that as well that I need to be particularly conscious of who the people are and it's not just necessarily because of their race or ethnicity but gender sexual orientation gender identity age physical ability physical appearance that's something that really spoke to me and also this idea of levels and lanes i really appreciate that because yeah i feel like i don't do enough feel like I think about these things and I try to educate myself. That's one of the benefits of being at a university campus is we have access to other scholars, other people, information, libraries, but I feel like I don't do enough. 
much of what you said today has been so educational and insightful and informative. And I deeply, again, appreciate the time and for, and for teaching me so much today. But the levels and lanes thing, I think really spoke to me to give like a corny sports analogy. I grew up in the Midwest playing sports, but I always think of it like how you develop a roster, right? You have your level, you have your lane, you know, you can be a role player. You don't necessarily have to be the star of the team or the person that is active in the sense of being at social protests or being physically participant, but it doesn't mean that you don't have your role and a role that can have real impact and effect on, well, what I would term hopefully social progress. Yeah, I've been thinking about all these things. I've been counting the Omer. One of the things of that is a lot of these, these questions have been coming up in this practice that I'm doing. And a lot of these questions have been, yeah, thinking about your inner sort of self. And I think a lot about this concept of, yes, how do I police other people? How do I worry too much about you know, the world at large? How have I internalized many of these understandings of the reality? And the Social Amnesia book is fantastic. There's an amazing quote in it where he essentially says that so much of the political systems or political ideologies have kind of been reduced to slogans. And he says that many times we just reproduce the slogans and all, all the slogans tell you are who are your friends and who are your enemies. And I cannot help but think about hashtags on social media and like, you know, even the defund the police hashtag and like these ways that these conversations about a lot of activist work has now kind of become unattached or detached from the actual political theory, the educational resources that are tied to it, where it's like, I'm gonna take this hashtag, which only tells me who's on my side or not on my side, but actually it's just you being in conversation with multiple people who have not done the sort of inner work of actually reading, engaging with this literature, understanding what it means to do any of these things, to do abolition work to do anti-policing work, to think about organizing and collective building and you know, imagining futures and all of these things. So yeah, I feel like this is always a primary concern of mine is you know, what does it mean to have this social amnesia and people who want to kind of show that they care but not actually doing the work that you need to really care. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's so important and thanks again. And I, I do think, look, I'm not gonna lie, like I've been buying books recently that I thought, you know, I really need to read this. I need, I need to read this. I need to not just think of myself as a progressive, like white guy at a university campus, but actually like read things and in particular read things by black authors to understand better. But thank you at least for having a conversation about that. Cause I'm trying to do work and I'm trying to get better. Faith, thank you so much. I speak for Caroline, hopefully, if that's okay. Um, but also, I think for many of our listeners, this has been a great conversation and it has been informative and insightful and, and educational for me. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and to share your insights and particularly the work of COVID Black. Uh, if people are interested in following COVID Black on Twitter, it is at COVID, C-O-V-I-D-B-L-K. That's at COVID, B-L-K, all one word. And also some of the other resources we will include in the show notes, a link to your recent blog in the Journal of American Studies and to the COVID Black website. And another resource you mentioned is Black Life in the Age of COVID-19. 
just wanted to give that another mention because you had mentioned it earlier in the interview. Just to wrap up, I want to say thank you, Dr. Faith Day, for your time, expertise, and for sharing some of the important and impactful research and knowledge that you and your colleagues at COVID Black have been working so hard to promote, build, develop, and disseminate. And again, if there's anything Caroline and I can do to help disseminate some of these resources or promote them, or in particular to record, we would love to record if you guys need help with that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.